I don't remember anything, so I have to like. Um, we are on the air. Sort We're of. on. <laughs> Artie. <laughs> Michael. Hello, hey. hello. What's up, man? Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, can, good. Perfect. Can you hear me? Yeah. All right. <laughs> Let's do this. You're on fire, dude. What's oh, up? my God. I'm on okay. fire Three great today. stories before Wait Mike was on. Wait a minute. It's Thursday, August 16th. I'm on fire. The Queen of Soul is dead. Long live the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin. It's a sad day. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Respect. I heard that just before I got yeah. on the train. Elvis Presley, dead. Never forgotten. The King. Go to Graceland. It's fantastic. Absolutely. Go to the Civil Rights Museum. Go to the Lorraine Motel. Should always yeah. go there. Okay. People need reminders. That's do, my intro does to Gimme Radio, does and I'm glad I'm a, here. Does Aretha have a Graceland? No, <laughs> not no. yet. But I'm sure there's somewhere in Detroit that if you go, it's very specific to her. Yeah, it has they to must be. have her child at home or something. Exactly, like one of those. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we hope so. Yeah. 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 Totally. Incredible. Incredible so, day with all the ups and downs of such life. Such is life. Michael. Correct. How are you today? <laughs> I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. He's like hyper. all morning. You know, when I found out she died, I was, um, there's a performance on YouTube from 2015, the Kennedy Center Honors, where she does Carol King's Natural Woman. Yes, I saw the it, footage it, of that. It oh, I saw that is too. a performance in how to do it right. It was really beautiful. Everybody was crying. No, no, I, yeah, so it was really I mean, powerful. You know, Obama, the First Lady, Carol King, they're all in like the balcony, like flipping out. And Aretha comes out in a full length fur and it's some sitting at the piano. And at some point she gets up, throws the fur on the ground. Everybody loses their shit, including myself sitting there. I must have played it 20 times today. All right. Yeah. Where are we going with this yeah, interview? I mean, uh, you know, there's no point in being... <laughs> she's had, a, she's had, a, uh, she had an incredible career, an incredible life. Oh, my God. Life, extraordinary. And, you know, so she... Uh, Ooh, I'm not on fire that much let's, anymore. Let's, I got that celebrate. out of my system. Let's, let's not be sad. Let's celebrate. That's good. I love celebrate celebrating. Her life. Well, we're all here because yes, of music, so let's... Yeah. I love it. Absolutely. So, Michael, you're the documentary made about you. Yes. Um, let's, let's promo that now. Let's get that... Out of the way. Are we allowed uh, to who say the fuck the, is that guy? Oh, we're allowed to say oh, the you can F curse word. You want. Yes. Oh, great. Oh, yeah. oh, no, 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 I'm not going to curse a lot. Uh, who the fuck is that guy? It's on uh, Netflix. Yeah. Uh, it, well, you know, I have to say this or else I get into trouble. Who the, who the fuck is that guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago, directed by Drew Stone and produced by Michael Alex. And yes, it's on Netflix, Amazon. And iTunes. Awesome. Yeah. So go it's check that out because it is a really great documentary. Oh, thank you uh, so much. That covers a lot of uh, your illustrious career, but not all of it. Mm -mm. Um, and uh, you were saying off mic that you are currently working on your memoir. I am. Which is going to include lots of uh, stories. And you were, so you were talking about how you've kept journals since you were 14. Yes. And the those journals, um, you were saying that they, they were sort of nonspecific, but like in the beginning they were, and then they got more creative, and then you started like keeping track of every show you had seen and, and that sort of thing. Could you go over? Sure. Like, you it, know, can you remember what inspired you to do that? Well, that, that's what I was just going to bring and up. Before that, what, did, what brought you, what were your first shows, and what got you into going to live music? Sure. Um, I have no idea how a kid from Brooklyn at 14 years old knew to get a blank book and start writing in it. I have no idea. It's, honest to God. And you have so, some weird karmic destiny shit Yes, going of course. Yeah. It's like one of those things... You were laying your own when, path if you knew it yes, or not. Yes, as a young person. You know, I think I came out of the womb loving music. 
Uh, you just asked me, my first show was June 3rd, 1973. It was the last night of the Billion Dollar Babies tour at oh, Madison wow. Square Garden. <laughs> Alice Cooper. Uh, great no little No wonder I love music forever. What a hey, Hello. You know, I mean, I'll tell you this story, even though I was going to tell it in my memoir, but I'll tell it in my memoir, a longer version. <laughs> my uh, cousin Carol Ann had a boyfriend, Manny the Greek from Astoria. And Manny the Greek had two tickets for Alice Cooper. He, I happened to be at my cousin's home that day and uh, she, it was that time of the month for her so she was cranky and all she <laughs> wanted to listen to was Marvin Gaye and she said take my 13 year old cousin he'll want to go well Were you already I, a fan um, I well you know I got killer from the TV guide Columbia house you know <laughs> yep. 10 records ten for records a penny for a but you didn't read the fine print yep. so um we all got screwed with that Manny the Greek <laughs> took me to that I'd never been in a venue that was about what 15 or 18,000 seats before I was overwhelmed we had those brown seats up at the top and I convinced him that we needed to go down to the orchestra we found two seats in the orchestra and really uh that concert changed my life forever how old were you? 13. 13. And do you yeah. believe this? I only met Alice Cooper last year. Oh, really? shit. That's amazing. <laughs> All this time? Wow. I mean, he was on the road with Rob Zombie, you know, Kane Roberts, who I'm very close to, and I'm executive producing his new album right now. Uh, played with Alice. For years. Years. Never met Alice Cooper. Wow. So when I met him, and I told him this whole story. So I met him before you. So Alice Cooper, he <laughs> says to me, so am I responsible for your career? I said, yes, you are. That's awesome. I've heard he's a nice guy. Oh, he's lovely. I yeah. met him once. He was and very nice. You know, it's the Bob, same Bob, show. Bob, it's Bob, fantastic. Uh, I did a record oh, with Bob Ezrin um, a couple of years back, and Bob said that Alice Cooper was the only artist he ever worked with who was better drunk than sober. <laughs> oh, you mean as a person? <laughs> no, no, as, as a, a singer. musician. As a musician. Oh, well, that's oh, that doesn't sound he fair. He told these great stories about when they would go into the studio to do the records that, that Alice, they'd have the equipment brought in, and then there'd literally be like another truck for, for beer and liquor. And wow. there was a whole wall filled with, with that, and he would go through just all of it, like in inhuman amounts of alcohol he was consuming. Well, I, will say this, I guess though. that's fantastic. I know, I, know I, mean, it's not, I know that's not the right thing to say. But, decades you know, <laughs> later, if he kept doing that, he'd be a train wreck because he still sounds great. Oh, now. yeah. I, I think he stopped so, drinking in the, in like the late 70s. Like or something, right? Yeah. Oh, really? That early? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Started, really? I thought ago. it was like 77, 78. Well, I think, I think it's it was like 80 or A long time ago. A long time ago. That's a safer, yeah. more he's been accurate. So, he's been sober longer than, he's, than he was a drunk. So. Okay, good. I like to hear that. that's probably Yes. Okay. But yeah, um, so that's cool. First show, and then you started keeping your journals at fourteen. And like, uh, when really, did you? You know, it, it's funny. It, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, of course. It was mostly just listings of everywhere I went. Right. You know, like '74, I see Lou Reed at the Felt Forum, <laughs> um, and maybe the night after, I went and saw the Spinners, Ashford and Simpson, Graham Central Station, and Rose Royce. That's, so you were that's all one over the show. Map. You were that all was over one the show. From the jump I was room. because you know when I was a young person growing up in Brooklyn, I watched a lot of music television, and that music television was Don Kirshner's um, In Concert, yep. uh, Don Cornelius's Soul Train, and Dick Clark's American Bandstand. So all of that informed my listening. So. Listening to all that, you know, I got everything from that and AM radio. And AM radio in the 70s was not formatted like it is now. So I got to hear everything from Rare Earth, I Just Want to Celebrate, to Grand Funk Railroad, 
closer to home, to Aretha's respect. And there was just a wide range of music that was constantly being played on the radio. So I got all of that information at a very young age. And did you have anyone older than you that was influencing you, or were you just finding it all on your no, own? No, you know what? I, 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 how do you say that? I trail, I blazed my own, own trail. trail. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's very strange, but like I said, I knew I had to be in music, but I had no idea what that meant as a young person. Right. Well, what's fascinating to me, because, uh, being an owner of a, of a, of a club, mm-hmm. um, and being one of the people who books here, um, I'm not the main booker, but I do quite a bit of it. The, the, uh, when you were booking at the Ritz, and that story is in the documentary about how you got that job and all that, so I won't go over that. Yes. But what I was interested in about that era was, was it like, were you, were you really taste-making? Were you booking shit you just wanted to see? Or were people coming to you? Was it difficult to get people to come and play the Ritz? I mean, it was, it's a big venue. It's Webster Hall, so it was like 1,500. And how much pressure cap, did you have from either inside the club yeah, or the Did you have a lot of pressure quote, to make unquote. money for, for the club? And well... Uh, keep in mind, that was my first official job. Which is fucking crazy. Which is incredible. Yeah. So I worked for this man named Jerry Brandt. Jerry wanted me to get his lunch, answer his phone, and open his mail. And that's exactly what I did. And I thought, I have arrived. Uh, soon after that, you know, I listened to all his conversations talking to the booking agents. And I, I was like a sponge. And I soon learned how to book a room that held 1,500 seats. So everyone passed through New York City, of course. So we had the return of Tina Turner for five nights. We had Prince. Uh, what year was your first year there? I worked there from the day it opened uh, in 1980, and I left in 1983. Okay. Uh, So there was such a wide variety of artists that played there. Like I just mentioned, Tina, and um, I had The Misfits played there. I had Undead played there. I had Black Flag played there. I had Divine played there. (laughs) But I had to keep in mind... There were nights that we had $2.50 nights, and that was for all local bands. Uh, More for the underground bands. More for the underground, yes, of course. What were those shows? I'm interested in that, because like the the, a 1,500-cap venue for a local band, even at 250, were people just coming out? Because there's... I mean, back then, there wasn't that much to do, so... Right. I can't say that those nights were... Full, right. but it was uh, it was like the thing to do. You know, it was supporting uh, local talent. Was there anybody t- notable that played those nights that got? Oh big? gosh, I can't remember. But you know, even when I had booked the Misfits back then and the Undead, there's this famous fight that broke out where you know that Bobby Bobby Steele ended up on the floor, and you know back then the security, the bouncers didn't know how to handle these young kids from you know jumping off on and off the stage, so it was like mayhem. Um, and like I said, those $2.50 nights, they did okay. It was really just to support up-and-coming artists. Oh, that's cool. I mean, uh, It's almost like doing a CB's type thing, but at the Ritz. Correct. Do you have a favorite show that you booked? The PIL oh, show? Uh, <laughs> or, well, that's well, you know, infamous, the, probably. The PIL show is infamous. And I'll just say, I've told this story a million times. I think John Lydon tells it in the documentary. He does, yeah. There's uh, more of that story that I'll tell in the memoir. But that was the day I met John Lydon. And 38 years later, we are still friends. I have signed him to Electra. I dropped him from Electra. And we have never, ever had a bad word with each other. That's cool. 
That's great. Easy and that's rare do. in this business. Were you here when he did the book signing here? Oh, here at St. Vitus? Yeah, yeah. No, I was yeah. not. Yeah, he, was, he, he did a book wow. signing. Wow. He complained the whole time. Oh, oh wonderful. <laughs> great. He was great, though. Fabulous. Oh, he I was, mean, yeah, us. he did an interview. He did a Q&A. Mm-hmm. It was very, it he was did great. He did a Q&A with a really clueless girl who didn't know his history, and he was very tender with her. That's oh, really? Mean. That's when mean, he could have been aggravated. <laughs> well, it's and accurate. Walked away. <laughs> no, he was. I no, he dug say, into her pretty hard. Yeah, but with, I mean, but with his like tough humor, he didn't really rip her head off. Well, he he's so smart. Yeah, he he's is. Witty yeah. as hell. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's uh, he's one of my heroes until I met him. But uh, but oh, I'll let it go. Well, he is one of a kind. <laughs> yes. That's for sure. Well, he seems was, difficult, but he's no the it, outside. He's. I've told inc- this story before, but it was it was more Rambo than it was him. But oh boy, okay. But he was complaining, and Rambo was just trying to make him happy, and, and there was no way he was going to be made happy. If he, his book is back here behind the bar, and what he was drinking, the Corona. And the brandy. Oh, wow. <laughs> Definitely the brandy. Yeah. Which, uh, uh, well, I adore him. He really is uh, yeah, I mean, one, of and those, uh, one of a kind that book, That book and the one before that, uh, No Blacks, No, no Blacks. Talks, No English, is, yes, uh, right. Irish, is amazing just book. fucking great. That's yeah, amazing. Like, he, he, I was never a Sex Pistols fan. I like P.I.L. Oh, wow. more, okay. actually. And, uh, and P.I.L. obviously had more output and... Mm-hmm. Has had more impact as far as I'm concerned in, in the future. Well, well, I mean, no, okay, so well, yeah. that's a different kind that's a total of impact. That. <laughs> Take that's that back. Diff- you know what? Different kind in of impact. In my world, they have more impact. Because it's a continuation of what he did and right, does but, now. But, on an but art, you know, when you think on about it, but on, on an artful culture level, in a country, totally. I mean, that's one way album. deeper than any great record that. Okay, I'm one album. Never mind the ball. Exactly. So going on. No, no. So uh, anyway, yeah, that's okay. So we'll we'll chalk that one up as uh, as your as your favorite. Uh, they, so then at that point, um, and this is where we can get more into uh, the metal stuff because of course, Gimme Radio is uh, a metal oriented um, radio station. Uh, well, then I hope they don't mind that we've been like no, chatterboxes. They can, I don't fucking care what. Oh, they good, want. me either. Yeah, yeah. as long this as they is, keep that darn intro. Hey, this is your show, bro. Okay, cool. It's all good. It's all Thanks. You. It's your story, not theirs. Um, all right. So you move on to Electra Records. I do. In 83. Correct. So there's, of course, famously you signed uh, Metallica, White Zombie, uh, Metal Church. Well, you um, know, White Zombie came later when I left Electra the oh, first time. Oh, went to Geffen. Right. And went to Geffen. Right. But the long and short of my 24 years is I was at Electra. I was at Geffen. I vaguely remember I was at uni, and then I went to back to Electra, then I went to Geffen, and then I went to Palm Pictures. And there you go, my history in 60 seconds. Wow, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> it's crazy. You know what I wanted to ask you? Please. Okay, so like, like a lot of A&R people and, and music industry people in the 80s and 90s when things were fucking booming and you could pretty much get away with a lot, who... All right, so you, you're known for the bands that became famous. Who did you sign who didn't become famous? <laughs> Who, like, and especially, like, who and I'm, saying, I'm not saying this because they sucked. Like, somebody that you were just fucking in love with, and you were like, this is the shit. And didn't catch on. And it just didn't happen. I was in love with a New York band called Smashed Gladys. Oh, I remember that. Oh, yep. Jesus. Yep. They, they made a record for us. It was real good. Oh, they had some good songs on there. Lick It Into Shape, Eye of the Storm. And I was convinced it was going to do the business. Lick it into shape. And it did not. What's that one about? <laughs> one can only guess. Honey. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but, you know, it's, it's funny. People ask me this all the time, and I try not to remember the things that got away from me, only because um, I only signed things that I felt that I could relate to. I'm sure other A&R people were just looking and thinking about numbers. And, of course... Because I worked at first for Electra, and they were part of Time Warner, you had to sell records. 
But, uh, you know, if I felt something for someone, you know, I wanted them in my life. You know, I didn't know if John Lydon was going to sell anything close to a million records, but it was fantastic that he was on our roster. You know, I didn't know if Metal Church was going to sell any records. And, you know, they never had, like, a, a gold album, but they were credible. I loved them, and I wanted to do everything that I could to help them move to the next step. And you did. And I did. the first album, I mean, I bought the first album right when it came out. It was a small indie release. Yes, that's right. A guy named Willie, who was their manager in Seattle, put it out, and he sent it to me one day. I said, I'll give you $10,000 for this record. And I think we wound up selling almost 40,000 records. That's great. And, you know, you took them to the back, next level back, right there. Thank you. And back then, there was a thing still called artist development. And artist What's development... What's that? Time, yeah, exactly. no, no, no. investment. Hello, time. <laughs> yeah. And when we sold those 40,000, we knew that we kept them on the road. Yeah. People loved them because they were really terrific live. And what are we going to do next? So they had all these wonderful songs. Um that made up this record called The Dark. It was produced by Mark Dodson, a British producer who we love. And I believe it was for that record that we had Watch the Children yes. Pray. Yes, that was the Well, single. you know, we made a $5,000 video with them. And so it got played at 4 o'clock in the morning and on Headbangers uh, Head Ball. Yep. Ball. And, you know, those things, I like giving them money <laughs> to go on tour, a little video that gets played every night at 4 a.m., and... There you go. There that's, all, fucking, that's artist development. Yeah, there were a lot of fucking kids watching that. At oh 4 yes, absolutely. And, and you know, these days there is no such thing because of the culture that we live in, and everything is social media. And social media is gimme gimme, oh, gimme gimme, gimme gimme. <laughs> I want it now. So you know, there's no room. Well, this for is a good segue, Michael. Artist the, development. The, the the what are your feelings on? I mean, 24 years in the music industry how things have changed obviously and changed so quickly that they weren't like nobody's no, they still haven't caught up they still haven't figured out a way to have a revenue stream to do artist development and i think the artist development disappeared you know m- mainly like for various reasons but a little bit because there's the money's not there to give to the bands to develop them so i mean what are your feelings on on the state of the music industry now and how it's changed obviously since you Stepped away yeah, from the you're kind of rebel spirit. Would you fit in today's music industry? Well, that's a big, fat, loaded question. I'm grateful that I got to do A&R and work in the business between 1980 and 2005. Like we just finished talking about, there was such a thing then as artist development. Because of social media and the gimme-gimme I want it now, there's just no room for that. You know, major labels just want to know if you could sell half a million records or not. If not, they have no time for you. And I'm going to tell you a funny story in a minute. Um, you know, at some point, people really stopped buying records. Yeah. They stopped. And, you know, in 2004, when I was getting ready to leave my last uh, gig at Palm Pictures, I saw all the Tower Records were closing. All the Virgin Mega Stores were closing. All the big chains. All the big chains were closing. And that was one of the first things that led you to believe, like, wow, people are not buying records like they used to. You know, people were downloading and file sharing and basically stealing. Which was all really new at that point. Oh, absolutely. It was a crazy time. Um, So I'm grateful that I got to do A&R at that period in time. You know, these days, 
you know, I, I'm going to tell you a, a little story. I am in love with a band from South Florida called Ether. They are so heavy, it's ridiculous. It's all doom and gloom. They have a little independent record out called There Is Nothing Left For Me Here. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, I'm, it's heavy. I'll, I'll bring you a copy uh, when I'm I come. I'm sure they'll play here eventually. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I we can't have, surprise they have oh, No, no, yeah, we, exactly. we have to have them. But I'm going to tell you the story. So they want me to get them a deal. So I send their independent release to about, I don't know, uh, maybe eight or ten labels. Metal Blade, Century Media, Seasons of Mist, and the likes of Nuclear Blast, Nuclear Blast Napalm, all those labels. Lore, yeah. Yeah. So right. labels get back to me, and one of the A&R guys says to me, I wish I could get excited about new music. Oh and I was like, dude, so who was it? Who was it? I can't tell. I'm going to guess. I'm not saying. <laughs> so I thought, dude, you should give up your job exactly. and give me that job because I am still out every night. I am still loving music. I am still on fire. I still want to work with those underground artists. So another one, another label on the West Coast said to me, dude, great album. But your numbers are terrible. Now, being 58 years old, I'm thinking to myself, my numbers are terrible. It didn't click in oh, for a minute. I... And he meant Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Because yeah. those are the new numbers. For those, some... are the, yeah. those are the statistics. What is that called? Like sales. analytics or something? Yeah. And those so... are the numbers that equivalent to them is the equivalent to what creates sales now. Right. right. And so we could even go back to artist development. So, so uh, these guys now, you have terrible numbers. And... Um, my answer to them is, isn't it your job as the A&R person that we're signing to to get them to that level, that next level? And you know what? People just don't see it like that Whoa. anymore. They and a lot of A&R, yeah, they want it on a platter. And a lot of A&R people these days, they look at something on YouTube and they go, oh, yeah, that's great. Well, you know what? That's like two-dimensional. And still, you don't know, does that artist, like, radiate any charisma on stage do they indeed have something to say for me you know i read a newspaper article and it talked all about like whoever and the next day i was on a plane to tulsa or wherever because i had to see these people i had to smell these people i had to see if they were charismatic on stage i had to see if they killed the audience if they were hungry if they were hungry and it's it really is just not like that anymore so i'm grateful i returned to being a fan and producing records here and there, whether it's working with Blood Clot or working with Cindy Lauper, uh, and now this new band, Ether, who Mike Gitter has taken a chance on nice. them, and they got signed recently to Century Media, and we're all real happy oh, with so that. so Gitter made the move. That is correct. Yes. Oh, I was going to do my Gitter imitation, but I'm not <laughs> Sorry. I can't talk so uh, intellectual. So. Um, he's a smart cookie. Oh, he's a yeah, real. Yeah, you mentioned yeah. blood Great clot guy. in there. Yes. Uh, I, I guess I don't have to guess which side of the argument you're on there. Uh, no, I just had a long conversation with Paris the other day at, at my show at Brooklyn Steel. Oh, and, and how did that go? It was. I mean, I didn't talk about the Chromex. Oh, him, good. Because I always wanted. He's, That's for the best. He's a big uh, prog rock, like Yes and Rush oh, fan, wow. and so am I. So I. I was like, that's what I wanted to ask him so about. So you nerded out. Basically. I was also completely drunk. Sorry, but <laughs> but, okay. but it was a good conversation that I thoroughly enjoyed. But uh, yeah, he. Uh, I'm guessing. I mean, you're probably not on either side of it. I know the Chromex are one of your favorite bands. Well, they are one of my favorite bands, and I don't want to. I don't know if it's about sides because um, 
I know John Joseph for 30 years. He's a dear, dear friend of mine. I adore him. I would do anything for He's him. He's a really interesting it, guy. Very smart, very interesting oh. guy. And you know, I still bug him every day. When are you and Mackie getting together and giving me five new songs? I'll get you the deal somewhere. Well, that's the five argument. Five new Paris songs. Is, Paris just says that he didn't write any of it, so... You know, like Paris is like, they were our songs. Well, you know what? We can get AJ to write and a couple of people. Five songs. That'd be great. I think people would, would love be. to I hear. I talked to AJ about it, too. Good, good, good. Keep on them. I just now, it sounds like I aggravate them, but not really. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I'm we sure did. hears it from everyone, but from you, it's got more weight. Well, you know, like you I said, happen. we have dinner all the time. We go out all the time. Uh, I know him 30-odd years, and, uh, you know, I helped him get this blood clot deal last year with Metal Blade. That's a great it record. Did, it's it a, great a great record. record yeah. It didn't actually go the way I hoped it would. We had Todd uh, on our on our, on our our uh, podcast a couple of yeah, couple months ago. Yeah, we did him last year. <laughs> um, um, okay. Which, uh, yeah. Okay. You know. Great. Whatever. You know. um, Great guitar player. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. Anyway, um, Next. <laughs> we can't talk about the Cro-Mags anymore God damn. Oh, oh no, so I'm sorry me, uh, No, no, you, I didn't know you wanted to you I love what? the Cro-Mags I Best hear... Wishes is my fa- one of my oh, one of mine top too. 10 records yeah. of See, all I'm time See, I'm a purist I, I understand yeah, Of course Age of Crawl too But when I heard Best Wishes Death Camps I was like, oh my god, this is amazing Did you, I mean, uh, did you get into uh, So like, obviously the Cro-Mags being a, a Cro-Mags AF being huge mm-hmm. focal points in the New York hardcore yes. scene, which is kind of like Ron and I. Like, I mean, I'm from Long Island, but Long Island hardcore scene, whatever. But me too. The, the, yeah, we both are. Yeah. Um, but the New York hardcore scene is a big focus of our lives, and and has been for many many years. Yes. The the um, did you like how far into that scene did you get? So you love mm-hmm. the Chromags, obviously. Like like do we well, oh, you know do we fast that... forward to the late '80s? Were you ever into like Gorilla Biscuits or the uh-huh. uh, the Youth Crew shit, all that stuff? Uh-huh. Or... So. Um... In the early mid-80s, I toyed a lot with the idea of signing them to Elektra. And then I really thought about it. And Before I thought, Age of Coral or after? Don't remember what 83 It's got to be after. So, yeah. Uh, right? Yeah, they must have been on profile already. 83? Well, no, look, no. The album isn't until 86. The okay. demo was... Oh, okay. Back. Then maybe that's yeah, what it was. Really anyway, before the album. live performances. Yeah. I thought they were the greatest thing ever. But then I thought about it, and I thought I worked for a corporation, and as cool as everybody is at Electra, I don't know if they're that cool. You know, you know, you know <laughs> what I mean? It's a tough fit. It's a tough fit. So why would I put these young people in a position where in the end I was the only one who was going to, like, Go to bat for them. Go to bat for them. You were fucking right. So I didn't do it. All I did was I talked about them all the time. Everywhere I went, I almost never missed a show. And to this day, they're still one of my favorite bands ever. Um, So fast forward a little bit. I loved the Sunday matinees at CBGB. I went because it was mostly all guys and they were all cute. And um, (laughs) I think there was a lot of guys that did that, actually. uh, Hello. (laughs) Bromance. Early bromance. Hello. Before bromance was even a fuck. Oh. A fucking word, and you know they get drunk, and it's oh, bro, I love you. Yeah, I love you too. Oh yeah, skinhead uh, anyway, culture. Right. Uh-oh. Okay. So yeah, I went to a lot of those shows. I you know I love the Crumb Suckers and Gorilla Biscuits, and I you know I think Roger Moret is like so extraordinary to this day. I think they're playing the Stanhope House soon. I'm going to be running to that. I'm going to be coming here September 18th for Phil Anselmo and the Illegals. And uh, last time, I, one of the last times I was here at St. Vitus, I saw Scour, Phil's other yeah, band. Yeah, was awesome. I missed that show. Oh, okay. So what happened that night was uh, something happened with their sound man. So yes, Joe Sincata is that his name? Yeah. 
Joe Sincata, who does like Suffocation and yeah. a lot of those bands, did their sound. How I did... never heard anything this incredible in this room. Wow. Almost ever. And, you know, it's all yelling and screaming and carrying on. My favorite thing. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, I'll be back here on the 18th of September to see the, the illegals. Good, good plug. Good if plug. not before. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> well, Philip is one of my favorite people of all time. He is a really interesting guy. Uh, he I is had, a character. I had a fucking two-hour conversation with him here the Easy first time I met him. Yeah, because yeah, we were playing Witchfinder General, and he's like, is this Witchfinder General? <laughs> and he just goes over and looks at my, uh, he's like, this your playlist? And I was like, yeah. He's like, man, this fucking incredible word. You know, this is before he got sober. And he was like, he was, he was rolling a dube, right? And, and it was a down photo shoot. And, uh, and I thought I was going to be walking into an AA meeting, pretty much. He's like, all those guys have been on and off for years. And, like, lo and behold, I walk in, and, like, he's smoking a spliff. He's drinking a beer. And I was like, after talking to him for a little bit, I felt comfortable enough. And I was like, Phil, I thought you were sober, man. He's like, I am rock and roll sober. And he just takes a big hit <laughs> of Awesome. But the one Scour played here, he was definitely uh, completely clean. I met him. Yeah. Well, you know, and he was really giving it to the audience that night. He was great. Unbelievable. It was, yeah. it was incredible response back and forth that evening. I met him a few months after Dime had been killed. It was a, an after show in the basement at CB's, and me and my bass player were just sitting there, and he's like, you mind if I sit down? And this is when he's doing a complete media blackout because Dime had passed, and he wasn't saying anything. Wait, wait. Where were you? At CBGB? CB's, but it was, it was a basement punk show. The, in the gallery. Yeah. In oh, the in the gallery. gallery. Okay, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Upstairs was Gorilla Biscuits, and downstairs there was an after show with a bunch of punk bands. Perfect. Yeah, and I God was playing the next day, and Phil was filling in for guitar that next day. Okay. So, bottom line is, I'm sitting there with my bass player, we're just watching our friend's band, and Phil comes up and goes, do you mind if I sit between you? I'm like, no. And uh, I was never really a Pantera fan. I oh, boy. Down. So, but I was, you know. When do we get rid of you? <laughs> Hey man, I'm old enough to remember their first three records. So okay, they, fine. You know, you that was, that you was can, my problem. You with can them stay. Too. <laughs> yeah, you can stay. What they do, it's just not my absolutely. Thing. So anyway, he comes and sits down, and he we didn't even ask because we weren't going to touch on dime. That's really sacred. He opened up for 30 minutes and he told us everything. Isn't that wonderful? He was tearing up. Wow. I mean, we, we hugged him at one point. Yeah, he's good, a, he's good. he comes he off as he's really, a hugger. He was really yeah, he comes off as really process, really so. sensitive, like super sensitive, yeah. but, like. Uh, and uh, like vulnerable and, and and interesting for a guy like that, you know. But he's been through a lot, so you know he's he's well. I, I, mean, I was back in the day, didn't he uh, die or almost die? On, yeah, yeah. On stage in Texas, I believe so. I was actually at Snake Sabo's house recording when <laughs> yes. oh, when he fucking OD'd, uh-huh. and because Snake was super close to him at the time, uh-huh. and I guess like now he manages down and whatnot. Snake Snake does. Oh, he's worked really? With I haven't McGee. talked to him in a while. Uh, I love snakes. Cool guy. Um, He's incredible. I'll tell you one quick funny story. So Jack Ponte in New Jersey says there's a band called Skid Row, and you really should go see them. But more importantly, you should meet this young person named Dave Sabo. And I was like, okay, sure. So I invite Dave into the city, and... um, I said, oh, my God, he's so adorable. And I thought, have you ever taken ecstasy before? And he said, no. I said, here. So we go to some Park Avenue sushi place, and we're eating the sushi, and the ex kicks in. Famous story. Dave will tell you. And, um, and he said, well, what are we doing tonight? I said, what's well, a surprise? So I take him to see the pros and cons of hitchhiking, Roger Waters at Radio City Music Hall. So first of all, the sound <laughs> is impeccable. There and you know Roger Waters, come on! Yeah, so 
But we were so high, I think we left in the middle of the show. We went back to my house and sat on the floor listening to CDs and chatty, chatty, chatty until the sun came up. That was Dave in, Dave's introduction to me and mine to Dave. It's, that's awesome. And we love Dave Sabo. He's Hello, a, Dave. He's a cool guy. Me and Melissa have not seen you in a long time, so let's get with it here. He was, when, I was, when I was recording at his house, he, at one point he was like, he's like uh, hey, Artie, you're, you look like... Uh, you look like you're about my size. Why don't you, why don't you go upstairs and look at my closet? I'm getting rid of some of the leather pants and the oh my god and the shirts. And I was just like, I was like, oh, leather pants. I'll never wear those. Um, but I should. I was dumb and I didn't look go through his concert t-shirts, which would have been fucking killer. Yeah, but I'm sure they were really? all cut like real deep. Of course, yeah, 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 yeah. like girls. <laughs> which brings me, which is a good segue into my next question. Um, uh oh. Uh, which well, I think this is an interesting one because yes, the, the, So you were an A and R guy during the '80s, which yes. is the height of glam metal. And yeah, so what like <laughs> and you didn't did you ever? Much. Yeah. Did you not go near that? Mm. And was it because they tried to look like women and you weren't into that? Mm. <laughs> uh, no, I, I didn't touch any glam metal because it was um, it was a lot of stuff that sounded like pop music to me, okay. even though it was hard. I was never interested in anything top 40. I was never interested in anything that was kind of like uh Clean sounding. I always gravitated towards the dirt, the young and the dirty and the underground. And to me, those people, I loved their rebellious spirit. And I felt that those people really had something to say. Keep in mind, top 40 is top 40, you know, moon, June, spoon. Now, <laughs> you know, no, really, it's not like downplaying how great some of those bands are. You know, Brett Michaels writes great pop songs, but none of that stuff interested me on any level. Right. So I think that's why I never signed any of those type bands. Huh. You okay. know? Did you get pressure from inside the label to go more no. in that direction? You know, when did they I, respect so, you as what you were? Well, very specific, let's say, to Bob Krasnow, the uh, chairman of Elektra. He let his A&R people sink or swim. I was doing a lot of swimming. And, you know, right after I signed Metallica in summer of 84, for that one minute, I could do no wrong. So I wound up signing Metal Church and Flotsam and Jetsam. Um, Which is all the, on the heavier side. And oh, that's commercial. me, the heaviest you, sign. Yeah, I was killing it. Did you know that the password for the internet here is no place for disgrace? Well, I love you. Which was really uncomfortable <laughs> awesome. to tell Flotsam and Jetsam when they played. <laughs> oh, why? Why? No, it was cool. It was oh, awesome. okay. <laughs> you know, and then at one point, uh, Dawkins, A&R guy. Were you? Left. Well, yeah, I was. I love like talking. Oh, really? Okay, good for you. I made you want to see him. Okay. Great guitar player. Uh, Not George, a great band. I love George Lynch. Love George Lynch. So I wound up being their AR guy. And the next thing we were going to do was uh, I had to uh, make a, a live record with them. So we wound up making this record called Beast from the East. Yes. Oh, that's right. Double live in I Tokyo. Was it really live? Uh, most of it, yes. Okay. I mean, we had. We had you know, you overdubbed yeah, it a bit. Overdubs Don and is notoriously not so great. And, and fixing it up. But um, I remember, you know, I was so excited because I went on the tour very early. So I got to see five nights of ACDC. Oh, I, was, I was in like friggin' heaven. And the one <laughs> night of the last part of that tour before they went to Nagoya, Osaka, and Tokyo, you know, George was just so over Don at this point in time and George put his hand through a door oh, and no. now you know now it's uh we have an hour before you're going on his hand swelling up I had to get him a bucket of ice it was insane the the the, the Japan shows were headlining shows and uh they wound up being really really good you know but also they're a very one of those commercial bands that um 
even though I didn't sign them, I was assigned to them and I was their A&R person. And of course, I was just going to do the best that I could with them, and I did. Um, but, you know, I still grab, I want heavy, 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 heavy. And if I ain't listening to heavy, I'm listening to female singers from the 50s or Tony Bennett and Frank Sinatra. You know, I don't know where all that comes from, but like I said, or maybe I didn't say, I just love music. Yeah. I don't know I, if that's I, what you asked me. No, that's, I mean, I, I always say, when people ask me about stuff like that, it's, I give the same answer. It's just, I just love music. Like, yes. you know, it's like, well, you own a metal club, and it's like, well, you know, and like on our podcast, I, I often talk about my love for Oasis and and Britpop shit and shoegaze uh-huh. and all that stuff. And like I thought, you know, when Oasis came out, I saw him at Wetlands and, oh my God. and Maxwell's Wetlands. and shit. And like that was, you know, it was it was magic at that time. It was there was so much energy. And I think that's what you, that you from getting what you're saying. I feel like that's what you gravitate towards is that sort of chaotic energy. I love heavy. I love energy. I also love, keep in mind, that when we were all going out in the 80s and 90s, we were, like I say in the, even in the movie, we were out every night somewhere. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I was out every night somewhere. Yeah. You I know? was out five nights a week. I, mean, I, was, you know. I was taking the B train, the West End train, the B train in from Borough Park in Brooklyn and coming in to CB's, to Max's. To a short-lived club called On the Rocks. I remember Black Flag at Great Gildersleeves, uh, you know, Avenue A. Were you uh, going to the A7 shows? I went to a couple of some of those as well. I love Wednesday night at Don Hills. Um, you know, so it was so exciting, the city. And, I, you know, I loved 42nd Street. You know, porn theaters everywhere. I was loving that. Do you think that your story is a, a really a purely New York story? Like, if you had been born in a different city or at a different time, none of this shit would have happened? Oh, you know, I have no idea how to answer that because growing up in Brooklyn, knowing I wanted to be in music, getting the village voice and looking at everything that was going on, I had no plan B. So I'm grateful that I'm here, and I have no idea like where my life would have gone if I lived in Nebraska. Yeah, I great, mean, yeah, it's, great it's Bruce an Springsteen album. <laughs> <laughs> it is an impossible question to answer, but yes. like, like in in watching the documentary, I really that's one thing that came out strong was like, like if you hadn't like okay, so you grew up in Brooklyn, and, and it's great that you had the wherewithal only to seven go to blocks the city. from Lamore. Like oh shit! Well, there you go. Um, it, uh, that explains that. Must have been nice. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, like I said, like I say to everybody, I walked there and I crawled home. It sucked. And, getting you know, there my from, mom from where like, we live. It was a nightmare. Oh I really? Going there in eighty six. Se- seven blocks. Yeah. Fifty we fifth Street to sixty second uh, Street. I'd come home. We lived in a railroad apartment. Half the time, I'd throw up. My mother would just <laughs> quietly, just like you know, clean the floor up, deposit me in my bed, and you know, I'd wake up. With my well, let's talk about Lamar the next day. Let's talk about Lamar's. Yeah. A little bit because uh, uh, Lemours is was a big influence on this place, um, at least like trying to uh, create a vibe. Uh, create a vibe. You yes. know, I know it's impossible to compare because it was four times the size of this place, and mm-hmm. and, uh, and it's like had so much. You know, obviously they could bring way bigger bands uh, to play, even though we've had Megadeth and Anthrax and all that shit. But like the the uh, uh, what's interesting to me about Lemours is like why. Being in Brooklyn, even now, you deal with these fucking bands and these agents who insist on their bands playing in the city. It's so dumb and old school. It's like, no, they got to play in the city. Got to have a city play. And it's like, dude, the city's done. It's been done for fucking years. There is no difference between. It's so homogenized. Where do you go? Yeah, like, 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 it just just, makes everything that used to be. It makes me fucking crazy. What I'm interested in is like in Lemoore's back then, 
was it the only place for those bands to play in the New York City in five in the five boroughs, and that's why they went? Pretty much. Like, how did the it Ritz happen? The would get the occasional shows because it's in the middle Lamar of fucking nowhere. Right. You know, right. like, like it was you, almost. It was you like couldn't on open up a club was, in that neighborhood. It was under no. Utrecht Avenue no. on an industrial block, no. and um, from what I remember, it was just the place that everyone wound up yeah. playing. Oh my god! I saw some incredible shows I, there. Oh, yeah. I saw everything. Okay, the list wait, is insane. wait. One of your favorites. Name one. Just uh, one. Well, for I mean, now. The one that the show was possessed at War and Blood Feast, but Slayer showed up by surprise a month before Rain and Blood came out and jumped wow. on stage and did five songs. Arthur? And King Diamond Cities. and Megadeth on Fatal Portrait. <laughs> what? Cities. Wow. Cities. That's what? deep. Cities I, or Zebra? <laughs> oh, my Lord. <laughs> okay. And wait, my, my first obscure. show there Sorry. was King Diamond Fatal Portrait Tour, and Megadeth opened right... It was like the same month that Peace Cells came out. And that oh, my was God. Extraordinary album. Yeah. I have a good story about Megadeth, too. Oh, please. Um, but wait a minute. So one of my favorite all-time shows. Give it to me, gentle. Give it to us. Uh, Wendy O. Williams. Oh, sick. Okay. Was it uh, Wendy O. Williams or the Plasmatics? Wendy O. Williams. Okay. Fabulous. And, you know, I think one of my first shows there was Metallica in 82. But I dragged Phil Cavano from Monster Magnet 2. And I said, you know, this was even before I had my job. I was like, I've been hearing about Metallica. and We got to go. And we went. Because they did play, when they were recording around Kill em All, they yes. played Upstate and Jersey and New York. Staten City. Island. Yeah, they played everywhere. everywhere. Yes, that's right. Johnny Z, I assume, was just booking them oh, all Oh, John the is incredible. We're currently visionary. Trying, we're oh, currently yeah. trying to book a uh, anniversary uh, Lemoore's party here, uh, like fortieth. I think it's, I think it's fortieth. Um, and uh, I'm so coming. There's been a lot Me of too. names thrown around. It's it should happen around Halloween. Um, I can only imagine what the names are. Well, cities was one of them, but uh, um, <laughs> this means a lot to him. By the yeah, way, what is he it's, talking about? It's, it's, it's band was on metal Blade. band before oh. he was in Twisted Sister. Oh, they put out a record back in the day that he worships. Good. Okay, they played Lemoore a lot. Okay. Yeah. Standard heavy metal. They played Lamar a lot. Uh, but one of the names was Overkill that we were oh, cool. that been great. trying uh-huh. that was desperately uh-huh. to get. That was get, their home for years, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah it makes sense. Because didn't, the, didn't, the bro- didn't the brothers manage them? Bobby Gustin, I think, lived right down the block. Oh, that's right. They had a business uh, association uh, with the guys uh, who owned it. George, yeah, right. is yeah. it Parenta? Yes. Parento. Yeah, I don't know yeah. how to say his name. The but Parento yes, brothers. They, they managed White Lion. I think Overkill. They played there every month. They had a piece of Fucking White Lion. Drew managed Biohazard back then. Yeah, yeah. Great place. I mean, yeah. Everybody just congregated there, and that's where you saw friends, new friends, because you saw them there the week before for something else. It was really yeah, extra- it was extraordinary. There, yes, you know, because they brought. Say, take a, the thing that was magical about it for me was that it was underground, but it brought people from everywhere: Jersey, Staten Island, Long Island, Queens. It brought us all together for one reason, and it was big, but it wasn't huge. It wasn't trendy. It wasn't corporate. So it had a cool vibe, even though it was bigger than, say, going to CB's every Sunday. It was, was a like, room with four walls, you know? Yeah. I, like, there was, <laughs> was nothing a, about it. It was the perfect size and the perfect place and the perfect atmosphere. Absolutely. Where metal was at at that time. Right. And then they did the bigger hardcore bands. And those shows, of course, were blood bands because the pollination of metal and hardcore then was not smooth. Yeah. I mean, it mm-hmm. was what it was. You know, those were, that was a culture war, you know? But um, it, it was the perfect place and time and, for that and, music. And for I, bands I, I hate like to bring Metallica it up, but and Metal Church and those bands mm-hmm. to get started and get their break here, Slayer, and then Wasp. the local bands. Yeah. And then the local bands like Anthrax, Nuclear Assault, Overkill to build their home base. I hate to bring it up, but the, that is the, 
the site of uh, an incident that changed live oh, music yeah, and club, clubs in New York City and across the country. The kid who died during the Life of Agony show. Which uh, is at Lamore? Yeah. Oh my and God, I don't even you, remember you, this. Stay close Because you, you know, you're friends with Life of Agony. Yes, yeah. very close. The, uh, yeah, the, the kid was stage diving, broke his neck. Oh, yes, yes, and yes. The Maybe family sued. Blocked it out. They sued the band, they sued Roadrunner, they sued Lamore's, they sued everybody. Wow. I don't, I don't know how it ended up, oh, but terrible. It, it was the beginning of the end for the, for the club. Uh-huh. And, uh, I think the in, um, I believe the family didn't get what it wanted, but um, it changed the rules of everything. Right. right. So, at so that like, point, everyone's like, well, we're vulnerable and we're responsible. Right. And you know, we were going to shows. I mean, God, if you were going to like CBs and stuff. But dealing, like, yeah. Killing each other, having fun. But, I mean, you know, there was no. no CBs one. got away with a lot because a lot of shit got grandfathered in. And it was through, a more street vibe. If you got hurt at CBs, just laughed. You're like, oh, I got no, my nose broke. Where these were people. I'd be interested was, to know how many lawsuits they had against them. They had a ton. <laughs> CBs? That place was a zoo. But also the people that came there for the shows we were going to were kind of cut from a different and tougher cloth. Yes. I don't think anyone was running to lo- for lawsuits. I mean, I just ran from authority. So if anything happened to me there, I just kind of you would deal with it on a more. Well, street everybody level. who went to those shows, uh, the the matinees, you knew they what you knew. Were getting I was into. just going to yeah. say they knew totally. what they were going to get getting into. Yeah. They knew they were going to get punched in the throat Absolutely. accidentally. But it's that off and kid who goes yeah, home to crazy. his parents with a broken arm well, and they're like right. crying. Kid, it's a yeah. suburban kid who comes home, right? And went into like an unknown area, and you know, dealt with some something he wasn't used to. And mm-hmm. his, him or his family or both were kind of like, yeah, you know. I mean, I always my say it's the parents. Always want to go to CBs, kids. and I'm like, you're not going with me. Yeah. And it was only because I didn't think they could handle it, or they would represent me well, and I didn't want to have to protect them. Yeah. I was like, this is a different world. You might think the music's cool, but it's deeper than that. It's and so Lamar funny. had a little bit of that, not as much as CBs, mm-hmm. but I used to go to all those shows on my own. I, 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 I never, terrifying. I never went with people to those shows. Well, I, I just, one guy. I'm well, sorry. you know what I mean. Yeah, but, yes, you, but Michael, you obviously knew people that were. There. Yeah, I guess so. But you know, like I never cared about going anywhere with anybody. Right. I just I wanted to get guy. there and hear the music. Other people slow you down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I always, I always feel that way. It's like just let me do it by myself. It'll be way easier. <laughs> oh, you want to see what my actual questions are? So back to Lamore, um, <laughs> you think that's where you saw Metallica for the first time? Yeah, eighty-two. Like a blurry I memory, blur- yeah, of course. You know, listen, everything is blurry of between course. the drink and the drug. And it's thirty-five Thank- years ago. At thirty-five years ago, there are days I'm s- I, I, I I barely remember my name. Or people say, "What'd you do this weekend?" I was like, "Uh, let me look at my book because I know I wrote it down." Yeah, good thing you did. But yeah, then end that even. Yes, correct. Yes, I have a Metallica question, which has to do more with the. Uh, the injustice for all period. Oh yeah, yeah. How much? Well, you know, it's so funny. You know, like I'm so tired of this because uh, I just did something for Billboard okay. in regards to injustice for all. But go okay. ahead. My, my question is: at that point, obviously, tragic death of Cliff. Jason comes in. The EP comes out first with the covers. Kind of introduces him to the band. Yes. I saw the show, the last show with Cliff in New York, and then the first one oh, with wonderful. Jason. And um, but you know, injustice for all comes out. And, you know, it's the first time they did a video. So I have two questions. One was the video. Was that label pressure or the band's idea? And number two, the, you know, the thing everyone talks about, the quote-unquote hazing of, you know, of Newstead. Mm-hmm. Did, you, um, did you have any input or opinion on that either way? And did, as far as the way the album came out and that his bass is, to say it kindly, is incredibly low. Okay. So both those. And topics. Justice for All. It is a tour de force album. It is their fourth record. It's their Metallica's best-selling record. You know, 
everyone's going to have a different answer to why that record sounds how it sounds. Keep in mind, these are young people still who maybe two years earlier lost their brother. So a new person comes in and it's like, you are not Cliff. So I think it was uh, grief, hurt. Do you think they were honoring Cliff in some weird way? I think they may have thought so. Sure. That's sure. so crazy. <laughs> no, 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 but you're true, no, I true, 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 true. I mean, this is a person... In hindsight, people look back at how they did things like that, and they go, oh, it's misdirected. But in the moment... Ex- good word. Misdirected. Misdirected grief. So it came out how it came out. It is an extraordinary record. I like you know, it's their fourth it's the album like. for Electra now. And uh, no, I don't think there was pressure to do a video, but when you have a song as great as one... And coming from what a Dalton Trumbo book, Johnny Got His Gun, right? Yep. And a very unique video, not a typical absolutely. And they had to just do it, and And, uh, they did it. And do do you think? Because I mean, that video really a lot of people knew who they were by then, but that video made everyone know who they are. Well, I think though. Yes, of course. I think everybody. Yes, everyone knew who they were at this point in time. But the world at large that's what I mean. really knew who they were yeah. when the Black Album came out. Yeah. Well, that's the next level. I mean, that's when they just well, took over the but, world. You know, but listen, yeah. they took over the world. But you know, keep in mind, every single record, they made extraordinary progress Definitely. In, in the material that they were delivering. Yeah. I mean, yeah. really. Yeah, Justice this is a prog is, record, man. It's crazy. Yes, it's, it, it's, it has elements. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The Absolutely. Songs the songs changes. are all long form. Yes. The, there's, yeah, there's fucking 45 well, like riffs in every song. Yeah, the songs are yes. all over the place. Seven minutes and five seconds. Yeah. And that's like the average time. Correct. You know? Like those uh, guys in well, one song. the first song, two only have one or two songs at length, and the rest are like four Those minutes. guys would write like enough good riffs in one song to like last like a life. another band's like five that's albums. Yes, that's right. <laughs> we always say that about Merciful Fate. They put out two records in an EP. Those riffs, they can have 12 records. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. But mm-hmm. they just Super put 12 of them in one song. Yeah. Did you ever get into King Diamond? Um... Not really. You like the theatricality. I of do. It, well, I like him a lot. Yeah. Uh, but they weren't one of my. Then he was never in my top ten. Yeah. Didn't grab you. Because, nope. But I do go see him whenever he performs. You know. Oh, he's yeah. He's still great. Unbelievable. With diehards, so this isn't a yeah, rational yeah, conversation. Uh, okay. Well, <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about. Um, you mentioned Metal Church. Flotsam. Yes. Yeah. Did that? How much of that had to do with the fact that it was Newstead's previous band, or were you already into them from Doomsday? Yeah, um, I heard Doomsday, which was on Metal Blade. Yep. I think it was their only record they had to do for Metal Blade it for was, some yeah. reason. And uh, so I go to, I don't know, a place called the, uh, I don't know if it's called the Empty Can or something in Phoenix. And I <laughs> oh, see. Oh, you saw them in hometown. Oh, yeah, I went to Phoenix to see them. Okay. Like I said, I was out every night, <laughs> even in Phoenix. Even, even 2,000 miles away. <laughs> that is correct. And I heard them and I thought, wow, these young people are kicking ass and I'm going to sign them. Um, of course, as we know, uh, by the time I was starting, I think, starting to make No Place for Disgrace, uh, da, 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 uh, you know, Cliff had already passed away. And when um, Lars called me on the phone to say, you know, you know, at first they didn't even know if they wanted to go back to performing again. Right. So I think the two people that Lars called was myself and Brian Slagle. And the two people that I recommended was Jason and Phil Cavano, who was then in Blitzbeer, yeah. uh, later now in Monster I Magnet. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, 
So, you know, I hated the idea that I was giving Jason up, but it was really the right thing to do because from his look, his charm, his charisma, his attitude on stage, I thought this is now the fourth member of Metallica. I think he's a great fifth of Metallica. Absolutely. And, you know, that lasted, what, 15 years? Yeah. You know, I mean, first four years were absolute, literally absolute torture. Um, <laughs> I could imagine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But uh, then he became Plus, a, a real. You know, he earned his so big. And he earned his millions, man. He certainly did. He certainly did. But I don't know what we're we talking about. So, well, you know, what's interesting is that. Uh, Who's about Flotsam? In the oh, Flotsam. Anyway, yeah. so I wound up making this record with them called No Place for Disgrace that I loved, and um, I love that record too. And actually, what I was going to say is that without Jason, they still made a fucking incredible record. Absolutely, yeah, that's a great record. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's my great. favorite Flotsam. Oh, record, good, good, good. I saw good. them on that tour actually. Yeah. I, you yeah. know, it's funny. I just went to see them at the Gramercy. Oh, I was there. It was so good. They're still awesome. And they played here what a year ago, maybe? Yeah. Oh, I was here for that as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, Mike Gilbert is an extraordinary guitar player. I'm crazy about him. And I, you know, I know these guys 32 years. What do those guys do for a living? They can't possibly make a living on music still. Right. Like it, I don't ask. It's always interesting to me when, when you meet these guys. No, I, like, I hear you. Like, you know, what's your day job? What do you, what do, you do? I know, I know. And, uh, so I did that embarrassingly. I did that Uh-oh. to a band called Fate's Warning. Oh, yeah. It was a metal band, one of my favorite bands uh-huh. from the 80s. And, uh, and I, I, didn't, I didn't ask Jim. I think I asked a friend. Like, and they were, we were part-time just bands. Of, you knew music wasn't their thing. I think, yeah. But I, no, but there are. Well, they, that's like, what you told me. I was like, blew my mind. No, I was like, I was like so what do you guys do at home? This is what we do for a living. I'm like, how? 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 You can't wow. even sell out our place. Like, I don't understand. I don't think I could have rent control on the Lower East Side and make music my living if I was in Not even. Warning. No. I don't understand. No. There's no money. There's no money. And they were in a tour bus. So that's fucking that's right. seven grand a week. Wow. You know, like a huge fucking bus outside. Yeah, like what surreal. the fuck? It, it blows my mind. Like, I'm, It's one thing I've always been interested in is like what, you know, like after all the, the chips fall and like, you know, I think like a band like Metal Church, mm-hmm. they played here actually. They... Um, and they didn't sell it out. So, mm-hmm. uh, like, I, I would imagine, though, but Kurt played in um, Trans-Siberian Orchestra. That's right. And yeah, he's, he he's done other stuff. He has a band to, that he loves making records with. I, I don't think they ever go out and play, but it's his uh, little baby called Presto Ballet. Oh, what's that? <laughs> it's his little baby. They're very progressive. Um, doesn't sound anything like Metal Church. I would love to hear it, though. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Presto Ballet. You'll... But does he release it even? or is it? Yeah, I believe he releases it, and I forget yeah, what the little label is. But, you know, right now he's working on it. Yet another Metal Church record. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that guy doesn't stop. He also is Great one of my... songwriter. Terrific songwriter. Yeah. He's Those also guys can somebody make money very near and dear to yeah. me. And they and can do you the know, festival circuit. Yeah. They, do, they have done the festival yeah. circuit, and... Uh, they just he just continues to work, and he also is a person that had no plan B. He just is out there doing it all the time. Yeah. I have a anyway. question since this is a metal based thing. What bands did you almost sign in the metal um, between like '86 and like '89? What metal bands yeah. were you looking at that you almost yeah. signed? Who'd you lose? Yeah. Well, not uh, lose necessarily. Either yeah. you changed your mind or yeah. you say lost to another label. Mm-hmm. So uh, one day I get this record called. Uh, Killing is my business, and business is good. <laughs> and it's on, what is it on, like uh, Combat it's, it's or combat, something? Yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I just bring the record into our chairman, Bob Krasnow, and I said, here, look at this. Well, he fell over. He thought that was the greatest title for a record ever. Then I had to tell him it was Dave Mustaine's band. So um, I really want... rep then was... 
Oh, not purdy. Yeah, <laughs> not yeah. so good. He's on Gimme Radio, by the way. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I really wanted to sign them. And uh, I, Dave and I had lots of long talks about that. When they were, st- him and Metallica, early on, was still at odds. Yeah, then it was real rough. I brought him backstage to a Metallica show uh, at the oh, Garden. Oh Do tell, Michael. Yeah, this is a story. So, <laughs> well, I mean, uh, so uh, I'm all happy and everything. And I think who was backstage was maybe some of the guys in Armour Saint, definitely Anthrax. And then, you know, the Metallica guys were coming in and out. Yeah, I'm sorry, in and out of their dressing room. It was the everything parted because everyone was like, what's Alago doing here with Mustaine? And I was like, everybody should just be friends. <laughs> well, it didn't really happen that way. Um, we didn't stay there long. At some point, he was po- willing to go though. He did. Yes, he did. That alone is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, for the show, we sat in the uh, sound booth, mm-hmm. and uh, nothing extraordinary happened either way after that show. Now, in the long and shorts of the talks I had with Dave, um, he just didn't want to be under Metallica and Elektra. And, you know, that's really what would have happened. He would have been, unfortunately, second fiddle. So I decided, you know what? It's best that we just stay friends. And um, I I, I didn't want to... If kept them apart, that would have just thrown more... Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It would have been horrible. That's great. Well, well, you know, I think more unhealthy for Dave than Metallica. Because living in the shadow, quote unquote. You would still have been in the shadow. Because they were starting, I mean, even though the album had the sticker on it and uh, it was known that he was from Metallica, Uh they were starting from scratch. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, when I, it wound up um, not happening that I didn't sign him, Um, we stayed close. I heard lots of. Parts of Peace Cells, but who's buying? I thought, wow, this is going to be the record for them. Yeah. I was in the studio a couple of times. Uh, there were times Dave and I would go out and uh, we would be on Hollywood Boulevard and he'd pick me up from the ground. I'd pick him up from the ground <laughs> because we were always yeah. out to lunch. At that um, time period, whenever I was seeing him tour through New York, he was living pretty hard. Very hard. Yeah, yeah we, I think a lot, a lot of people were. I certainly was. And, um, you know, I'm glad he was always, back then, uh, appreciative of me. And, you know, it's funny because when that record came out, I was looking for my thank you. And I see like this... <laughs> I, no, no, I see this friggin' list of must be like 200 people. And I'm like, this son of a bitch. But then I went down and he says, and of course... Michael Alago. That's and I, even more I, special. No, no, no. And I appreciated that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've seen them these days, and um, let's just say I'm closer to Dave Ellison than Dave Mustaine. I love Dave Ellison. You know, Dave this Ellison. Really uh, Dave nice. Ellison is a human being. He's a really nice He's guy. He's fantastic. Yeah. He's a family-loving guy. He's an extraordinary player. And uh, also another one of those charismatic characters yes. on stage. Oh, yeah. He played here at Metal Allegiance one night. Yeah. Ooh. When the little bodega deli was right next door, he just sat out there. He was just standing against the wall for 20 minutes, and people were, like, stunned because they couldn't find anyone else from Metal Allegiance. Although the singer from Death Angel is a sweet guy and went hang at the bar. He but sure is. Dave Ellison is the most approachable, friendly, yes, appreciative guy. Mm-hmm. Especially at, at that level. He's trying to convert people to... 
to his church, though. So maybe was, maybe that was part of it. <laughs> he wasn't giving out pamphlets. So he wasn't, but, but he is uh, he is absolutely one of the one of the classiest dudes. Yes, without a question. Yes, indeed. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, really. Like he, we we had an incident that night that he was very apologetic about, and uh, and I have to give him credit of where credit is due for. For that. Cool. I won't tell the story. Because, something that was, <laughs> I won't tell the story um, for Gimme Radio. Listen yeah, to our we'll podcast. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, so uh, let me ask you about um, did you did you know you were gay like at six? <laughs> yes, at I seven? knew. Uh, also, there were two things I knew coming out of the womb. I was gay and I loved music. <laughs> yes. And you know, I... Um, so you knew your destiny from the jump. From the get-go. And you know, I was a person who um, was never in the closet. I didn't understand that. I didn't care. I had no fear. And I always... So was high school from a young, weird for you? No, not no, really. No, no not... I don't, I don't remember weirdness at all. That's so because, awesome. Because, you know, That's I would... I would, I would, I would I, you know, listen, I lived in the Borough Park, Bay Ridge... Yeah. Yeah. Well, half of, of those Hasids are uh, looking for a BJ. They you know, are, yeah. um, and you know, <laughs> and, and right in that basis. area, that whole area, Borough Park, Bay Ridge, Bensonhurst. Yeah, I know. So but, you know, I was always trying to seduce all the young Guidos there, and um, I did half the times. But that's another story for another day, <laughs> and that's not what we're doing here at Give Me Radio. But yes, I always knew I was gay. I never had a problem with that. I had no fear. I didn't care because I always had that thing in my head well, you, that. You, you, People are gonna people are gonna like you or they're not gonna like you. And I really don't give yeah, a shit. Okay. But, but you industry, didn't use it though. as your identity, correct? Pardon? No, you, not at all. You know all. what I mean? And no. I think I think that that's probably a big part of it. Where where like if you walk around being like, "Hello, I'm you know like I'm I'm Michael Lago, I'm gay," or "I'm gay," oh, I'm God, Michael Lago. You know what I mean? Stupid. Like, no, right. no, but, I would never. But like you know, I think I think when people encounter. Uh, they, they, they. It's a sort of a defensive reaction if they encounter bad experiences. Mm-hmm. But, but, like, so going into like the hurly burly '80s metal world. That's what I'm like, saying. No Which one, I loved. No one but fucking. Like I grew up, we grew up metal kids in suburbia. It's a very strange. And that was a homophobic. Uh, I hear you. When I became a punk rock kid, it was totally different. That approach. fucking thrash uh-huh. scene was straight up, man. Like, yeah, uh, they were really. You know, they were like these macho, homophobic kind of guys. Then when I got to punk and hardcore. I related to it more mentally because I was like, oh, they don't have those kind of judgments. And the, mm-hmm. anyone who's a rebel or different is just respected for the most part. I mean, well, it's a, I don't know if the word is funny, but uh, I just can't think of a better word at the moment. You know, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny that. Um, like I said, I would always go to these shows by myself and I was always drunk and I would always just come up to like the, the hardest guy and start chatting him up and you know it's like I said bromance before you even knew that word and even when somebody felt like oh this dude's coming on to me I don't know how but I always diffused that really fast and honest to God I can never remember having a problem with anybody that's, just, that's amazing I just I, I never got beat up I, I don't know maybe people told me to fuck off but I don't know. I've had this strangely blessed life to wander through it all and get success at an early age. But, um, you know, like I said, just being gay my whole life, and and I still am. (laughs) um, Yeah. uh, I Really, I don't know how this all happened. You know, I just knew I was a people person. I love people. And like I said, when all that shit happened of me, like throwing myself into the, this leather clad crowd at Roseland and hanging out and grabbing guys by the shoulders, 
I was really feeling him up. But um, <laughs> yeah, I just I, I have no idea how else to answer that. I just but, you, uh, know, you know what's interesting about it is yes. I've, I've always made jokes. I mean, Henry Rollins has some good jokes about this too. You know, like the whole the hardcore scene, the metal scene, very male dominated, correct? Uh, very very ma- very macho. And as a gay man, you know, you like men. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Perfect, so like, perfect scenario. Yeah, like it's it, it only it only kind of makes sense. Like you know, a sweaty show at CB's with all the dudes with their shirts off moshing into each other. Heaven, like that's more gay than you. So, Correct. <laughs> you know what I mean. So, you know, it's very funny. At a very young age, there was a young man who passed away early in life uh, named Patrick, and he was in the Stimulators. Oh yes. And Patrick was gay, and we would sit and just clock everybody at CBGBs <laughs> from like uh, where Charlie Martin did the sound. So there was the bar on the right side when you walked in, and on the left near Charlie, there were like these tables that were up off the ground yeah, yeah. a couple of like a foot, and we would sit there like looking at everybody and. And thinking, like, who are we going to try to take home? <laughs> in the late 80s, yes. Mike Bullshit was in the DIY hardcore scene. He made a top 10 of the hottest guys in the hardcore scene. Oh, did he for Bullshit Monthly? Yeah. Oh, he had oh stop. Who was on he it? He was around since the mid-80s. Zine was more like 87, 88. And who was on that list? I can't remember. Oh, life. my oh, God. God. I can't speak. I can't remember it in 32 years. Can you Google it or something? It's pretty DIY. I doubt it. Oh, my but, um, Lord. But it took such guts, because at that time, yeah. that... I mean, that's when New York scene was really violent, and I yes. not very welcoming. Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, he had everyone's respect, just like you. It's like, it's how, how you carry yourself is everything, and you obviously carried yourself in a way that was honest, but respectful of what other people are. And oh, I absolutely. Think that's what carried you through everything. Uh, I believe so. I mean, I've always had respect for everybody. Gender, color, none of that mattered to me at all. I really just, I do love people. And I, um, like I said. Find that? Yeah. Oh my God, how great. <laughs> it's not uh, it's just, you know, I don't know. Like my, my life has really worked out beautifully. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, amen. That's uh, okay. I, mean, I think it's a great story. And, and uh, you know, I, it's, I, I, my my favorite thing I, I got from the documentary was just like the the varied artists that you worked with, mm-hmm. which I think is something obviously you're really proud of. And you know, uh, um, Cindy Lauper and, mm-hmm. and uh, the Nina Simone story. So <laughs> that is, oh, that was intense. So they kind of brushed over that in mm-hmm. the documentary. And um, there was one somebody who was interviewed. I think it might have been one of your coworkers who was saying that she was batshit crazy at the time. Mm-hmm. What exactly does that mean? Does that mean? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I always loved Nina Simone. My Aunt Jenny used to play her records in her apartment, when I, and I started hearing her voice when I was about 12 years old. It had this androgynous feel to the voice. Now, I say the word androgynous now, although I did not have that word in my vocabulary back then. So it was a very interesting voice to me. And as I grew up, I knew I wanted to get these records, and I just fell in love with her voice. And you know, you know, you know when people say to you, if you go to the desert island and you can only bring five records, what would you bring? I would only bring Nina Simone records with me, and I would be the happiest camper ever. Um, you know, by the time I wound up meeting Nina Simone in 1983, not signing her till 92, um, but going to all her concerts, she knew me by then. She knew it with the great love that I've had for her and the respect that I had for the work. So we also got along like a house on fire. And at one point, I gave her ecstasy as well. That's another story. That's another that story. Be in the book. Yeah. And who was with me? Kurt Vanderhoof. Uh, yeah. no, I- no, I take Kurt Vanderhoof to the village gate to see Nina Simone 
phone. He knows nothing about her. What a and crew. Of co- oh, yeah, please. And, 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 you know, this is a person who could be one of the most charismatic people in the world. So he, Kurt understood it when we were there. So we go backstage and I said to her, this is my friend Kurt, I, you know, I just signed his band. And she said, well, like, what do you do? He said, I'm in a heavy metal band. And she looks at me like, really? I gotta be in some damn heavy metal band to get signed to fucking Electra. And, you know, we all had a good laugh about it. And I might be mixing up two different nights, but I think it was that night that I said, here, take this. And she said, what's this? I said, it's ecstasy. And she said, like, what? I said, well, it's a drug that... Maybe by 4 o'clock in the morning, we're going to go to City Hall and get married. You know what I mean? So she had a good laugh about that. But we all wound up going to VIP at Limelight, and we were there till like 4 o'clock in the morning. By 5 o'clock in the morning, we're so out of it, I bring her back to her hotel on the Upper West Side. I'm in my leather gear. We're fired up. Security sees us, and they stop the elevator. They're like, you're not going up there with uh, Miss Simone. And she, like goes off on these people. This is my friend. And we were like screaming and hollering. Nothing close, almost nothing short of having the police come up to get me. That didn't happen. But I was like, oh, honey, you know, I love you. And she's like, I love you too. I said, well, you know what? Go up to your room. I'm going to go to my house and I'll call you. I think we talked on the phone till the sun came up because we were so out of it and so fabulous. So Nina Simone, um, I think also what people didn't realize is that she was bipolar and she had a lot of issues mm-hmm. and um, and uh, that bipolar never got taken care of with correct medicines and right. stuff. And then also, you know, at was some she point, a drinker? Like- some, yes, she was a heavy drinker. Okay. So none of that helped the situation. Right, of course. And, you know, whenever I speak about her, it's always with love and respect. So, um, you know, even when we talk about her being bipolar and blah, 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 you know, to me, she was one of the most extraordinary artists that ever walked the face of the earth. I remember recently seeing Bob Dylan on TV. He was getting an award from Music Cares. And one of the people he thanked was Nina Simone. And he felt so grateful that she would even cover one of his songs. Right. Now, coming from Bob Dylan, that's heavy duty. But he bought so lovingly of her and she felt the same way about him uh so you know to go back to the you know batshit crazy thing um you know she had troubles she had problems and like i said none of that was Was it difficult to put the record together with her it was a little difficult but you know i egged her on was her health a factor no 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 just that she was a difficult human being you know what i mean but by that time i'd known her 10 years i would i traveled all over the world to see her in concert I, you know, like I said, I thought she was the greatest thing ever. That must have been amazing um, for you just to like have oh, that access please. to somebody I, like that. I, yeah. I loved every waking moment of it. Um, I have letters from her yelling and screaming at me that I wasn't taking the right care of her at Electra, and where was the rest of her goddamn advance? Do I have to be a metal band? Right. Well, no, not that. That, that was just a <laughs> one. That, a metal church. Right. That was that was only a one. That was only like a one night thing. Um, but she was really like somebody who was uh, uh, I- extraordinary, you know. And uh, she even got not, you know, she even got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year, 2018. And that's great because now I think even more people will know about her. And for me, that's like a, a blessing because I really did think she was the greatest thing that walked the planet. 
Wow. Yeah. yeah that's that's awesome. The, yeah. The uh, another thing in the documentary that struck me, just because on a personal level, it was uh, it was something. So uh, uh, you don't know me well enough to know, but I'm a I went to all boys school, Catholic school, the whole nine. Grew up in, on Long Island. And um, in 1995, I was in a band that was signed to Island Def Jam, and I had moved out of my house, and I was working at a record store. What called, was the band called? It was called World's Fastest Cars. Uh, okay. With the, it was qui- basically Quicksand. Oh, wow. It was a singer from Quicksand and me and, and various drummers throughout the two years. <laughs> but uh, it, we, okay. never put any, we never put anything out. Um, but uh, the, the, uh, so I started working at a, I had to get a job mm-hmm. in, in the city. So I, got, I started working at a record store called Rebel Rebel. Of course. And um, so, all right. So picture sheltered sort of, <laughs> uh, you know, Catholic school boy. I went to Catholic school it's, for at least 10 years. Well, you tell All boys. You were talking, high school. About, you were talking about like the, the, the way the West Village rolled in the 80s and 90s mm-hmm. and about like the cruising thing. Mm-hmm. And, and it'd be like, you know, you see somebody. They either call on the telephone or, or you just catch eyes and then you go up to the, you know, BJ later and you're out. So <laughs> this was something that was completely foreign to you. I mean, I didn't <laughs> had I, no idea whatsoever. I had no fucking idea that this uh-huh. was something that actually happened. Oh, yeah. So I worked with I worked with all these guys and they would bring me out to to uh, Twilo and and the various clubs and stuff. So, you know, I'd always be like, you know, oh, wow. OK, cool. And I I looked at it. Well, I think they probably looked at it as they were shocking me. Uh-huh. Um, but I looked at it very much as an education in oh, good. in uh, in a culture that I didn't understand mm-hmm. and yeah, had no an experience look, with, you know? and and uh, luckily not too far of an inside look. But correct <laughs> going for to you the, going to the bathroom yeah. in those clubs was an experience. Oh, okay, <laughs> um, no, but it was interesting because they would he, you know like the one guy I worked with he would go to lunch and he'd come back and be like oh yeah I just got a blowjob and I'd be like what he's like yeah I was cruising the sky and blah 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 I was like you didn't even know his name he's like no. Yeah, no, and like, I was just, or the fucking gym that was, oh. you know, between the gym and the West Side Club stories, it would Correct. just be like, oh my god. So it was interesting when you talked about that. That I, I was like, I was like, oh yeah, it totally brought me back to that those moments of <laughs> sort of learning about that culture and and trying to trying to understand. It. I was like, and, and I was I would always say like, man, it just seems like it's easier to to get laid when you're gay. And of course, like you know, as a straight guy, you don't deal with all the other bullshit, uh-huh. societal bullshit that you have to deal with, and also. What was explained to me is like, well, so many of these guys in the West Village aren't from here, and they grew up in places where there wasn't as much freedom. Mm-hmm. So when they get here right, in right, their right. early twenties, they go fucking nuts. Well, you know, it's so funny. I lived all the way on the West Side on Washington Street in the eighties, and that's where I talk about you know when that very funny um, you know animation comes up yeah, in the great. movie. We pick up yeah, the phone. Right, yeah, <laughs> because you know when the phone rang in those areas and you picked it up, it's somebody who was looking at you from down the street, from the next phone booth upstairs on the second floor and you think wow this is great it's so interesting to me that no one would think that's creepy it was just you know what <laughs> not at all it was like it was you know it was usually you know two o'clock in the morning and you were like a little intoxicated by then <laughs> but it was always fun and 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 like to meet people at just have quick sex at that hour and right, uh, right. you know but with some of us you know they've been um you know, uh, consequences, and a lot of my friends died from the AIDS virus in the 80s, and, um, you know, it's a very wild thing that um, 
I uh, survived all of that. And, you know, at some point in time, I had full-blown AIDS, and I was on my sofa, and I weighed 80 pounds, and there was no medicine out. And, you know, Eric Bogosian and Cindy and Patty Smith called me every day from, from St. Clair Shores in Detroit, and my friend Carol and Debbie Southwood-Smith would come over at 2 o'clock in the morning yeah, and because, because I had 105 temperature, and she'd wash me down and break the temperature and put me back to bed. And, you know, it was like a whole thing. And I had a doctor who was at the forefront of medicine, and she was like... Like, don't take AZT. It's the first medicine we have. We're not going to give you enough and nothing's going to happen. We're going to give you too much and it's going to kill you. And I said, Barbara, I trust you. And months later, this first antiviral uh, came out and I took it. And she said, I'm going to give you something that's not... FDA approved, so I took those two things, and nine months later, I was skinny, and I was back at Electra working, and I never got sick like that again. Wow. That's fucking amazing. And to this day, you're taking... I take medicine. I take five pills in the morning. I take uh, seven pills in the morning. I take five pills at night. My viral load is zero, and it's like... It's almost as if the, the virus is not even in my body do anymore. Do you work out, you work out and stuff? Nah, I stopped working out last year. Look great. When, when all That's... the cute guys stopped going to the gym. <laughs> and, and, you know, <laughs> like I was, I, I was, no, 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 I need motivation. I needed a trainer. And if I didn't get a trainer, I wasn't even going to do it. But no, I'm going to start going back to the gym again. But no, you know, I have great health, except for, you know, in the winter when, when it's snowing and everything and my lungs are still a little screwed up and I get bronchitis and I always hope it doesn't turn into pneumonia. But, you know, other than that, I'm like doing a okay. Yeah. It's a blessing. Really. You take, well, you take I mean, care you of yourself, great. right? Like, yeah, Absolutely. Your yeah. energy is boundless. Yeah. It's, yeah, stop. It's inspiring. Yes. Well, today <laughs> was very specific to four cups of tea, black tea, caffeinated. There you go. Gotcha. Yeah. So, um, well, I mean, you know, the cute boys at the gym brings me to my next oh, boy. question. Okay, um, sure. No, so the photography thing, that, uh, it has, has that pretty much been your profession? Yeah. When I was a weird little kid, when I would go to friends' homes, I would ask to look at their family photo albums. I have no idea why. I loved looking at pictures and trying to figure out what the stories were that were being told in these pictures. I did that all the time. At some point in time, I got a Polaroid camera. Oh, but prior to that, I used to carry a little plastic Kodak 110 in my jeans pocket. <laughs> and when I was at Max's and CB's, I snapped a lot of pictures there of people like Debbie Harry and say, Alan Vega from Suicide. Are those the, the pictures that are used in the doc? A lot of pictures in the documentary. Yeah, there's some amazing photos. And I have some more. Uh, so, um, and I, you know, I was documenting all the men I picked up for like one night stands and I Polaroided all these people and I have tens of thousands of Polaroids which I don't know what that says about me I was loose, <laughs> I was cheap, I was a whore back then but you know I have all these extraordinary pictures and then I decided when I stopped working officially after 24 years as an A&R person that I was going to take pictures officially and people were like oh are you taking pictures of rock bands and I was like oh no not really so I, I, I gravitated towards uh who I liked, and I liked uh, tough guys who were tattooed and scarred, and that's what I took pictures of, and I have three books out of that work. Um, Right now, I'm working on uh, a new book, totally different, because all I do is I use my iPhone with the hipstamatic application, black and white, and I still shoot tattooed people, but, you know, uh, they're portraits, and it's nothing to do yet with nudity, um, you know, I, I shoot backstage at concerts, and uh, so I have a wide variety of people that I've been shooting 
at shows. So this is going to be like a really atmospheric portrait book if I get a new publisher. That's cool. So, awesome. so basically <sighs> pic- p- pictures of people at ease backstage just chilling. Yes, uh, yeah. yes, yes. I like it. Like uh, Linda McCartney had a lot of – Oh, uh, Linda McCartney was great. A lot of shots Absolutely. like that. It's like, yeah, uh-huh. It's, uh, which is uh, – like it's a different way but, of seeing somebody. But, you know, they're, they're not candid – you know, I don't. I don't like candid p- pictures. Right. Um, so I specifically asked somebody if I could take their picture. I want to get it done in five minutes because in that five minutes, you know, like we all don't have time to think. So it's like they're going to do what I ask them to do. Right. And recently, there was a girl named Chris from Houston was backstage at Madison Square Garden for Slayer, and half of the left side of her face was tattooed. Okay. And her face is so beautiful that it's like wow factor so I said let's go to the bathroom and she's like uh why are we going to the bathroom I said oh I forgot I forgot to tell you I really am a photographer and I you know like I gave her the whole Michael Alago story I took her to the bathroom I shot 12 pictures of her at one point I said please close your eyes and she closed her eyes and I got three images of this like beautiful dreamlike quality in the picture so uh yeah, my approach these days is different. I got rid of the cameras. I use the iPhone, and everything is looking really, really beautiful. Cool. That's yeah. awesome, man. That's yeah. great. I, I, I wonder what her story is. Tats a beautiful girl tattooing half her and, face. Uh, Paul Booth did her face. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I mean, so you She's... know it's exquisite. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so the pictures still radiate, like, sexiness about them, um, but they have this very rock and roll approach and feeling. Cool. So, it's, it's cool. It's not my rough God's work, and I may go back to that stuff again, but I really want this black and white book to come out. Great, man. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. killer. Good luck with it. Thanks. And so uh, to wrap it up, the, yes. uh, the... Oh, what am I listening to these days? Yes. Okay, sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you what other band you were working with, but oh, whatever. That uh, probably well, corresponds okay. well, you know, to what no, you're no, listening no, to. Well, you can do both. No, no, no. Well, um, like I said... This band from South Florida called Ether. I just got them signed to Century Media. We're going to make a new album for Century Media that'll come out in early 2019. Um, you know, I still love my music real hard. I think Al Jorgensen Ministry made a his most important record to date. It's called Americant, and in that cant, it says you know there's that KKK. Yeah, I saw the last one. It's a very political record. It's very right now. I think he is important. He's still an innovator. I saw that tour twice, and I lost my mind. Great. You know, at some point, he told his girl, he goes, you better get Michael Alago up here to stand on the side of the stage because he was going back into Psalm 69 and just one fix yeah. that I, like, I banged my head so hard that I'm surprised I didn't crack it open at one of these shows. But, you know, Al Jorgensen. You, uh, it, you, obviously, you know Al. I know oh, Al very man. well. Is he, I, is I, he I, is out to lunch as he comes off? It, well, I mean, you know, not out I, to lunch, I, but the conspiracy okay, listen, theories. The I whole, know Al for... The drugs. Uh, I have two Polaroids that I can show you of him and I out of control in my house in the 90s. And, of course, Walter O'Brien was managing him then, and it was at Roseland, and they were like, 
nobody's allowed backstage. So I, I said, well, I'm going backstage. Al heard my voice. He was like, is that a lago? Let a lago in. I'm the only one back there. There's this broken glass, almost similar to my Lemmy story. And I see this line that's probably about 20 inches long. And it was like, oh, I'll snort some of that. I'll snort some of that. And I wound up bringing Al home. No monkey business. As a friend. And we were high until the next no day at noon when the tour manager was looking for him. I got shit for not getting him to the tour bus on time to get to Rhode Island, but he wound up getting there. I love Al. He's not crazy anymore. He has a good woman with him, Liz, who is on the road with him 24-7. And like I said, he has always been an innovator. He's still an innovator. And Americant, for me, is the most important, one of the most important records to come out in years. And, and I've been listening to that. Pardon me? They're coming around again in a few months. Yeah, they're in Europe right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're coming around. I can't wait. So, yeah, I, I, I still love Music Hard. I love this band from New York called Black Anvil. Um, those are my old Those are members. old friends of ours, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Was in the a, last record. I was in a band with Gary and as Paul was. for 12 years. Incredible record. I agree, actually. Um, yeah. You know, I still love the, the last Metallica record that just came out. Um, Venom Inc., Ave, extraordinary rock album. Yeah. Extraordinary. Those guys are incredible. I saw them here at St. Vitus. That was a great show. I saw show. them at the Gramercy. They kill. They kill. What's incredible. Uh, the, They're coming uh, around again, too. Good. The, yeah, uh, they had a cancel. With Goat I believe. Uh, Tony. Didn't Tony? He had a heart attack, right? No, not Tony. No, uh, oh, 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 Mantis did. Mantis. Uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Sorry, Tony. Love those guys. They're extraordinary. That record's great. Tony actually has St. Vitus Bar tattooed on his arm. Oh, good. <laughs> Uh, what else am I listening Which was pretty to? crazy. Uh, he's got it written down. No, because sometimes my brain doesn't work. Oh, there's a punk record that came out in 2009. I guess you can call it punk by a group called Gallows. Yeah, of course. They made a record called Great well, they, Britain. Yeah, they haven't been around in a, in a nah, while. Because, you know, when Frank left them, they became like, a, they have a new singer, but they it's didn't have that yeah. energy and that punk sound that, Great Britain has. No, yeah. Great Britain is an, is an extraordinary record. The record so before I, that too is amazing. And they're, one, they're actually one? they're an interesting uh, they're an interesting band because they're one of the last bands to get like a million dollar record deal. Oh yeah, Warner Brothers. They That's were right. in they were in the car going to sign with another label. I was EMI or something, and and uh, uh, Craig Jennings, their manager, who I known for years. He uh, they got a phone call and they were like, "Hey, no." Oh wow, I we'll love hearing it. this. Wow. Oh, how Boom. great! They turn the car around and just go to Warner Brothers and fucking great. sign with them. Oh, wow! But they were like the last of of those bands, and they never they never sold. Sh they didn't sell shit. They were an awesome band. And, and made, do you for like that Frank record? Extraordinary videos. Oh yeah, they were great. like short films. Yeah, yeah. They were like beautifully photographed. Yes, I love Frank. I just Frank, saw Frank uh, in the little room downstairs. I don't know, last year yeah. at Webster Hall. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, I've been trying to get him to fucking play it forever. He's extraordinary live. He's, he's an incredible front man. Wow. One of the best. Wow. Like, like, yeah. Absolutely. Him I'm dying to photograph. Oh, yeah, he's covered. Yeah, actually, yeah. He, did, uh, he did that flash sheet back there with all the St. Vitus. Like, you oh, can, can barely look, see it. I'm going to look in a minute. Yeah. Um, um, but since I hijacked this last part of the dude, interview. Dude, interview. Okay, great. Oh, fabulous. <laughs> Fuck you. You hijacked <laughs> my <laughs> interview. Exactly. But no, what were you going to ask me before I started talking about ministry? And Al, I love you, and oh, I hope you're mates. listening. That was what Why? I was going to ask you. Oh, what, good. What, yeah, who yeah, you were working yeah, with yeah, and what yeah. you're listening to. That's pretty much. That's what I'm listening to now. And everybody look out for uh, uh, Michael's uh, uh, memoir, which, when he finishes it, will come yeah, out. Yeah, we're trying to get it to come out the second quarter of 2019. Okay, Yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. Yeah, you got to go through the editing process and all that we're bullshit. Gonna do, we start that on Monday, believe oh, it no or way. not. Okay. We're gonna see awesome. a, I'm going to see a first draft, 
And I'm sure it's going to be about rewriting and rewriting some more. When, but I'm excited. When's the movie coming out? When's the real buy-up? Who's going to oh play you? Oh, my God. I know. That's funny. Who should play <laughs> Who me? Who should play you? I Who don't do you know. That's a in the question. In the biopic. Well, what hot young actor out there should play me? Oh, come on. You got it. You... No, I've never thought about that, but that's a good question. <laughs> For social media. You gotta get someone like six five. Oh yeah, right. No, we need a five foot four Latino. Uh, if they were gonna be true to form. Who's some hot um, Latino actors right now? Oh my god. Who's that guy in Law and Order? I have no idea. But you know, I love I love I love the, the show that's on with Ellen Barkin right now. Animal Kingdom. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Ay, ay, ay. And there's some like, you know, actor named Sean Hatozi on there. But he's so white and has so many freckles. They, they can make some movie magic, you know? Not that kind of Dark not enough movie magic. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. That's good. She's kinda of going off on a tangent right now. But that's a good question. Somebody should make the biopic yeah. of I mean, my life. What, Think about like, like the documentary goes into certain things, but like a biopic of your life, especially. I mean, you saw. Did you see the show Vinyl? The worst the show, show ever. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, for ten episodes, it was the same episode. Yeah, I do a lot of coke. It but got no, no, really it, monotonous. It, really, it, it was, right. The first episode, I'm like, okay, and right. It was and just the, the second same time, thing. maybe okay. There was no evolution. Then, there was no progress. But I can picture your. I can picture your bio being. Like that, but with actual stories. Oh, <laughs> that's incredible that's a, stories. But, you know, the yeah. stories is what makes it human. It makes it interesting. It makes Correct. it evolve. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. because it has to reach a peak. And yeah. that, that show just started somewhere and went, and, you know, it just gets tired. It wasn't, it wasn't done right. Well, until, until the uh, memoir and the bio, biop come out, um, you can watch uh, Who the Fuck is That Guy? Uh, what's uh, the subtitle? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago, directed by Drew Stone, produced by Michael Alex. Beautiful. You On are Netflix. S- you are so good and at that. You know, oh, and no, I have to be because Drew would like kill me. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, Drew? And yeah, thank hi, you, Drew. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank it. you so much. I yeah, hope really. uh, I wasn't too hyper. Oh, and, uh, no such thing. I, we had fun. Yep. So thank you both so much. You're welcome. Great. Uh, thank you, Gimme Radio listeners. Cheers. Later.